The America's Quarterly Podcast is sponsored by The Boeing Company. One area that's getting a lot of attention in Latin America these days is hydrogen, which is a key element in producing sustainable fuels. Boeing has spent recent years developing technology to increase the use of green hydrogen in fuel cells and in combustion engines on its airplanes, as the company pursues a goal of achieving net zero carbon emissions by the year 2050. Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. In today's episode, we'll look at what's changing and what's not in Venezuela. What can we really expect from the dictatorship of Nicolás Maduro? We're going to see some sanction relief, but I think that from the political side, we're never going to see like a different discourse because Chavismo is not going to change. A modest degree of change seems to be underway in today's Venezuela. The Bank Credit Suisse recently forecast 20% economic growth for this year. Of course, that would recover just a small fraction of the 80% decline between 2014 and 2020. But it's something and a possible sign that Venezuela's economy has bottomed out after so many years of contraction and humanitarian tragedy. The dictatorship of Nicolás Maduro may come back to the negotiating table soon with the opposition after abandoning talks last October. And the U.S. government recently eased some sanctions on the Maduro regime. Following a trip to Caracas in early March by a high-level delegation of Biden administration officials who met with Maduro. How much, if any, hope should these developments generate for a potential political and economic opening? Is this just another false spring? What does the U.S. government really want from Venezuela? Is it just oil or something else? And finally, what is today's state of the opposition and its theoretical leader, Juan Guaido? Joining the AQ podcast to discuss all this is Raul Stock, the director of Caracas Chronicles, a website that has done excellent coverage and analysis of the situation in Venezuela over the past 20 years. Raul is based in Miami. Raul, thank you so much for joining us today on the AQ Podcast. Hi, Brian. Happy to be here with you. Raul, you were last in Caracas in November. What do you hear about conditions on the ground these days? Does it really feel different? Does it feel better for regular people? Well, uh, of course, as with everything that has to do with Venezuela, uh, this is a complex question. But yes, of course, if you go to Venezuela and you haven't gone since uh, before 2018, you're going to feel that there has been some change. And change that could be felt as soon as 2019, which was a crazy year. We had the unconstitutional election of Maduro. We had the rise of Juan Guaido and, and, you know, when he took over as caretaker president. And then we had a unprecedented blackout where uh, cities went without power for several weeks. And then we had uh, the sanctions and a bunch of stuff that happened that year. But that wasn't Venezuela's worst year. <laughs> I mean, like economically, 
Um, by the end of 2019, and what we used to say is that the government simply disappeared by the end of 2019. All the controls disappeared. And suddenly, you know, you started seeing dollars in the street and you and the authorities didn't do anything, you know, to stop that. People would transact in dollars because there were no Bolivars. On the other hand, the tax authorities disappeared. People started importing goods uh, without um, paying taxes. A lot of the operations were taking place in, in dollars and they were unregistered. You know, it was like a little boost to the economy in the sense that, you know, they just like freed the economy and, and, and let it, let's see what happens with it. Of course, along with that came a lot of Chavista money investing in local business uh, stuff like the lady that did my mother's nails, for instance, who would charge two bucks or one dollar per session was now charging $15 in dollars. And throughout the last couple of years, when Chavismo realized that it sort of worked, they sort of started to integrate it more formally to sort of like the their economic policy, if we can say that. Um, so, Raul, what you're describing is a de facto dollarization of at least part of the Venezuelan economy. How has it been reflected, though, in life on the ground? Of course, what you saw here was like a lot of inequality because you started seeing groups which are like within the 5%, you know, importing Teslas and Ferraris and doing a lot of business within what we call uh, the bubble. If you go to Caracas right now, it's even more beautiful than it was like 10 years ago. And of course, if you're transacting in dollars and you don't, you don't use Bolivars, which was a, a coin that, that lost its value really quickly, in the end, it sort of impacts everybody. But at the same time, you can see right now how inequality is skyrocketing. But compare how people are living right now in Venezuela with 2017 and 2018, which were the worst years, the years that ignited Venezuela's mass migration. Right now we have like a steady flow of people leaving, but now you get a lot of people coming back in. So what I'm hearing, Raul, is that the government basically started to get out of the way, so to speak, in 2019, allowed this yes. flood of dollars into the country. And therefore, with the circulation of hard currency after the hyperinflation of previous years, things started to feel better, at least for people who had access to that dollarized economy. Not everybody has participated in this change, of course. And you did a recent survey, which you published an article about in Caracas Chronicles, um, trying to gauge for how many people really life has felt better over the last couple of months. What did you find and what was the split within the survey itself? We made uh, first a general question, which was, uh, is life in Venezuela, is it getting better? And the answer that we got across the board is no, <laughs> of course. We did it online and we sort of like used like our digital universe. And here you also have to take into account that people who are like on Twitter or in social media tend to be like hyper informed and are like more passionate about this kind of stuff. The last time I went to Venezuela in November, the most impactful thing for me was uh, the mindset of the people, how people just simply like disconnected from politics and they're just like concentrated in 
surviving and doing well. Can you talk to me a little more, Raul, about that disengagement from politics that you felt while you were there? What's driving that? Is it just an absence of hope that there could be some political change? So people have kind of, you know, thrown up their hands a little bit and said, this is not going to get better, so I'm not going to focus on it. Or is it something else? Yes, of course. Like It's been 20 years already of high engagement with this sort of stuff. Venezuelans were very much engaged in, in what was happening. They were engaged in politics. We, you know, uh, marched and uh, people got killed and, and we could see like the sort of like the true nature of the government. And you know that the government is going to repress protests. And uh, you start seeing, okay, there's a, like a different strategy. The whole Guaido thing was a, a big thing. In 2019, uh, there was like a sense that transition was going to happen. And when it didn't, two things happened. First, people got disappointed again. And second, uh, a lot of people started realizing that uh, these folks weren't going anywhere. They aren't going anywhere. Even at Caracas Chronicles, it's something that's been like hard to, to finally understand. But uh, the people in, in Caracas mostly understood it. And Chavismo also understood that people understood it. Uh, a smart thing that they do was like, uh, hey, life in Chavismo can be better. And they started like flexibilizing all, all, all the things that they did. This doesn't mean that it's like a, a, a shift in, in Chavismo and that the path that we're going to transit is like a happy dictatorship. There's no such thing as that. Yeah, to that extent, Raul, let me ask you, I mean, we've talked about the improvement, the modest improvement in economic conditions. Has there been any corresponding improvement in political conditions in the last two years? I mean, you know, again, I think our listeners know this is a brutal dictatorship that has taken political prisoners, has tortured them, has forced people into exile. I mean, has there been any easing of conditions on the political front to match what's happening in the economy? Well, no. <laughs> I mean, um, what we've been witness to is like the masterfulness of Chavismo to turn things around. And uh, we've seen uh, many changes in the political arena, of course. The approach that Chavismo took on the November elections, I think that was uh, really smart. Um, after the 2018 presidential elections where where they simply, you know, burned the constitution, basically. And we were able to see, uh, and it was audited, that they stole an election, that we could finally see that they actually changed the numbers because uh, it's something that hadn't happened before. Before, they simply did something that was illegal, that was unconstitutional. Then with the, with the Constituent Assembly, they also did that. So they took a couple of steps back, even when they usually don't do this kind of stuff, and sort of like uh, rethought their strategy. Raul, it is still the official uh, position of the U.S. government, as well as several other governments around the world, that Juan Guaido is the president of Venezuela. Do people on the ground in Venezuela still believe that to be true? Um. Well, I don't think so. I mean, especially in the ground in Venezuela, what Juan Guaidó does on the ground, 
apart from, you know, political work, doesn't affect the people. For people in Venezuela, the government is chavismo because, you know, what the government does impacts them directly. The place of Guaido's caretakership is, is a very complex one. You could say like, okay, this strategy failed. Uh, but even if you say that, you just can't wish it away because it does have some legal base. For me today, the strongest legal argument in favor of, of Guaido's caretakership, it's something more about uh, international law because you have all these countries that recognize him. It's a web of, uh, of legal consequences that, that give some solidity to it, as well as the control over some key assets. But then again, for the people in the ground, of course, it's not the president. So for all practical terms, then we have a government and an opposition. Let's talk a little bit about the state of interaction between the two of them. Both the international press and the Venezuelan press have been reporting that Maduro or his representatives could soon come back to the negotiating table uh, after talks collapsed last October. Last week, as we record this, we saw a photo of a government representative and a delegate from the opposition shaking hands. This was on Twitter with a caption that said, in a work meeting for future plans in the rescue of the spirit of Mexico, which refers, of course, to the last place that they spoke. What's really going on here, Raul? I mean, oh, what should we expect from these talks in concrete terms? Is there any hope that these negotiations actually lead to free and fair presidential elections at some point? Or is this about something else? Well, that photo that we saw on Twitter, at least it, it, it's a sign that they're talking. <laughs> um, but I feel that um, the opposition's place in that t table depends a lot on the United States. And uh, it's not that the opposition is like a puppet of the U.S., but it's like uh, the U.S., it's like the opposition's big brother in the sense that I want to be involved in what's going on. Uh, don't lead me out. And they're so, sort of like going back to Venezuela and saying, hey, if you want this and that, you have to sit with my little brother and speak. There's something that we're not that we haven't talked about that it's like government opposition of uh, uh, politics for me are dead, but chavista politics are very much alive. What do you mean by that? Uh, uh, politics within the government party, within PSUV and the different groups that that are there, and that is very much alive, and a, a lot of what we see uh, has to do with that. This is one of the biggest problems that chavismo has in terms of sort of uh, engaging with, with the United States and like opening up a little bit to what we were talking about, uh, happy dictatorship. They have to deal with their internal opposition. What is the essence of the debate within Chavismo then? What are they really arguing about? There's a little bit of everything. Classical thing of our, uh, an authoritarian government or what you were think is that there's like this monolithic uh, way of thinking but the truth is, there is division of powers in Venezuela. The parliament sort of became a repository or a, a place where, where Chavismo started throwing their ideologues that, you know, couldn't uh, work with them in the Maduro administration because they were too orthodox 
problematic people like Diosdado Cabello and tell them, hey, this is your realm. This is where you can exercise your power. The thing is that before that parallel parliament didn't have any, any power because internationally Iran or China wouldn't recognize it. One of the things that, that China uh, at that point uh, was asking, and Russia as well, was that they wanted more independence and a larger stake of the JVs that they were involved with in the oil sector, uh, a modification of the, of the hydrocarbons law. But they didn't want it from that entity because for them it didn't exist. They wanted it from the real parliament, which was in the hands of the opposition. There's this whole discussion of which parliament is the actual one, but the truth is that the Chavista parliament is, is working as the, as the actual Congress in Venezuela. But they aren't able to do it because they have all these ideologues and these people who want to exercise their power that are blocking it because it's people who still have a small political capital within the government party and all these ideologues that just uh, think that what this group of Chavismo is doing right now is just like, um, you know, privatizing and going the uh, capitalists and all, all that stuff. So all that people that they just wanted to get rid of right now are sort of like blocking a lot of the work that they're doing. And also, maybe you don't get a lot of pressure from Russia and China to make those changes, but you're sure getting lobby and, and pressure from Chevron to make those changes which is what we believe or what we've read in the press that was authorized by the U.S. right now because we haven't seen any, anything official. What the U.S. told uh, Chevron is, okay, you can engage in those talks that you were already having and the lobbying that you were doing to get a larger stake and more independence in your oil business in Venezuela. But all that is blocked or controlled by these uh, groups that, Chavismo has to lobby internally and by the opposition to Chavismo within Chavismo. What you were saying, like, what can we expect from, from the, the, the Mexico talks politically? I think that we're not going to see anything very much different to what we saw in the November elections. We are going to see efforts of Chavismo to sort of like bring in, like they did uh, the European Union and international organizations and, and show progress. Because if, if you look at it, Objectively, the November elections were a little bit better than the things that they were doing before. One of the big things that the opposition should be trying to do, and I think that they are sort of, it's sort of in their discourse, is um, including Venezuelans abroad, you know, in elections and all that. I don't know if, if they're going to be able to do it. Maybe Chavismo will do some concessions in that sense but I don't expect much from the Mexico talks. So what I hear then is a regime, a, a dictatorial regime, letting in just a little bit more democracy, a little more window dressing of representative government, not enough to make any real difference, just enough to maybe get some more sanctions relief. Is that basically what you're saying? Yes. And in that side, I, I mean, for them, it's, um, I, I think that, that this discussion has like two channels. One is like the business channel that is very much alive with, um, you know, uh, international oil services companies, uh, with Chevron, with uh, European companies. And also there is like a, a general sense abroad and also inside the country 
people are sort of like pushing towards sanction relief. Everybody's like waiting for the U.S. to lead the charge. And the U.S. has been doing is leaving the talks to the business side, you know, to uh, Chevron and the service uh, oil services companies. And every once in a while, they intervene to say, okay, uh, we give you this or we give you that. For now, w what happened last week, we, we saw that there were like two concessions that they were going to give, but nothing has happened. I don't know if they're sort of like making them contingent to to seeing progress in the Mexico talks, but I think that there are two channels. One is advancing at great speed, and the other one is, the, the political one is a little bit more slow, because it depends also a lot on how the United States look. So let's talk about that a little bit, Raul. In early March, a delegation of Biden administration officials including Juan Gonzalez, uh, the top Latin America official at the White House at the National Security Council, uh, traveled to Caracas. There was a release of U.S. hostages. There was also talk at the time that maybe Venezuelan oil could help fill the gap in global supply caused by the war in Ukraine and the sanctions against Russia. Uh, but since then, everything has gotten a little bit weird, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. Uh, We've heard contradictory things from Washington about the nature of these talks, what they really hope to achieve, what the end game might be. What's your read? I mean, where is all this headed, do you think? Well, um, they have a lot of pressure from different actors to just like, uh, okay, turn the page. There's business to be done there. Um, so you got, there's a lot of lobbying going on in Washington. There's also uh, many group international organizations that, as I'm telling you, uh, um, are being pressured to pressure the United States to turn the page. There was a lot of excitement around that meeting, but the response after that, both from the government and the U.S. government, was obvious. So of course, they were going to say, we still recognize Guaido, and that is a dictatorship. And Because, again, these are two channels, two different channels, the political one and the business one. And I think that in the end, uh, business uh, may uh, make its way. We're going to see some uh, sanction relief. But I think that from the political side, we're never going to see like a different uh, discourse because Chavismo is not going to change. What did we see last week? These were like two big concessions, like allowing Chevron to, to talk directly to the government. And the other one, a bigger one, and we're still waiting for that, removing uh, Maduro and, and Celia's uh, nephew from the OFAC list. This is a key guy of Chavismo. So removing him from the list is a huge concession, a huge concession. What was Chavismo's answer after that? Okay, they were happy. They took a picture with Gerardo Blyde. Jorge Rodriguez said, tweeted, okay, but we need Alex Saab in the negotiations. Alex Saab... Is this a Colombian businessman? <laughs> he's been like a facilitator uh, of the government. He's done uh, business with the government. He's uh, received uh, million dollar co contracts all over and uh, involved in corruption scandals and, and money laundering and, and all this. And when Saab was caught by Cape Verde authorities who were going to extradite him to the U.S., the Venezuelan government you know, just decided like, okay, this guy is Venezuelan. Uh, and they, they gave him a passport and like, 
you know, a, a diplomatic, <laughs> they made him ambassador <laughs> to, to whatever. So right now, uh, the, the government wants this guy uh, who's not even Venezuelan, who's not even, uh, you know, they, they want him in the negotiations. He has been extradited to the United States. Yes, he's in the U.S. right now. So they want him released. Um, and the, the end game here is not like uh, not having him talk to U.S. authorities, which he must be doing already. Uh, it's just sabotaging the, the talks. You know, it's, it's buying time, which is something that Chavismo is great at. That is the classical Chavista strategy. That's where I say that they're never going to change. They're always going to dance around and, and try to keep the, the upper hand in these dealings. And meanwhile, Raul, this whole strategy, this muddy strategy of maybe moving towards some accommodation on a limited basis with Chavismo, with the Maduro government, it has carried a political cost for the administration. You're there in Miami. How did this all play there? I mean, we, we saw Marco Rubio, of course, the Florida senator. Uh, in response to the easing of these sanctions, he said that Biden's foreign policy is, quote, built around appeasement and giving concessions to dictators. How is all of this playing amongst the Venezuelan exile community in South Florida and elsewhere? Well, the, the Venezuelan community in South Florida tends to be very passionate. I think that was key uh, in the 2020 elections, not because we are a huge mass of people, but because we have a compelling story that's useful to the Cuban community, which is very strong in, in Florida and, and the Republicans. But I think that from the Biden administration perspective is that what they see or, or what they think is that, hey, we're not going to win these people back. <laughs> this is Trump land. <laughs> we might as well uh, try to change the strategy. But locally, I, I, I don't know. I've been thinking about this kind of stuff and the Venezuelan community is very passionate uh, about this. Uh, I think that there is like a, a majority of, of Republican-leaning voting uh, Venezuelans. But then again, what would happen if, you know, they would open a con the consulate again and you could solve your passport problem? Or what would happen if you get like a direct flight to Caracas to visit your family? That kind of stuff that impacts directly people I have the, this friend that, that, that was like a hardcore uh, Trump follower. And during the Trump years, <laughs> he went to get his visa and he only got it for one year. And when Biden won, he was mad and he's still supporting Trump and everything. But then he went to process it, to get his visa and he got it for 10 years. And now he's like, oh, yeah, Biden's my man, Uncle Joe. You know? <laughs> Uh, and, and I mean, this guy is not a voter, but when things impact you directly, I think that makes a big difference. But from the political side, what they're seeing here is that this is something that we're not going to win and, and we're not going to get like our, our seats there either. So, Raul, final question for you. You have said during our conversation that Chavismo is not going to change. And my final question is, you, you know, basically where is venezuela headed and i i look i have been pessimistic about the possibilities of change in venezuela for 20 years now and as a result i have rarely been wrong <laughs> i see a dictatorship 
that is determined to play the long game, imitate Cuba, who, of course, advises them. And Cuba has been in power for more than 60 years and counting. And I feel sometimes like that's the end game in Venezuela as well. Is is there any hope for real change? Or do you think we're going to continue talking about these minor changes and these minor shifts, but nothing really substantial at the end of the day? Well, uh, Chavismo has already over 20 years. <laughs> And uh, I don't know, uh, someone asked me, from what point in time did Chavismo started being uh, a, a dictatorship? And uh, <laughs> my answer was, well, I never did not see Chavez as a dictator. I always saw him as one because it, it was the style and where he was headed. And, and it was very clear from the beginning that this is the place where we're, we're going to end. And not because I had like a, a brilliant political mind, but everybody saw it. But where is it headed? Um, as I told you, okay, Chavismo has uh, its own rhetoric and its own ways. And, and uh, I, I don't see it changing much. But as I told you before, I think that it's going to be very interesting to see what happens within Chavismo. Um, I think that there are forces uh, within Chavismo who also want power. We're starting to say, hey, we need like to alternate. <laughs> who named you uh, the boss? Uh, Chavez did, of course. <laughs> but we don't know if, if Maduro is tired. And for Maduro himself, like saying, okay, I'm going to step back because I just want to take a break or I'm tired and I already did my part. The thing is that leaving power uh, also means uh, that you're a little bit less protected. And the question is, within Chavismo, are there off-ramps as well? Still, they do have forces within Chavismo that, that they have to wrestle with. What they did in the November elections was, okay, let's do the cleanest possible election that we can for sure win. That's what they did. So that is probably what they're going to do with the presidential elections. Something very interesting that they could do is say, okay, Maduro is not going to run. We're going to have whoever run. And this is transition. And this is what you want. And this is, and, and I think that that would be smart because uh, even when they, uh, they still have all the power of the state to control, control some variables, they could actually create some real political capital, which right now they don't have because they're, less popular than the amassed opposition and, and actually win the thing even in a straighter way than they did November. But again, this is how we think and not how they think. So they, they usually stick to, uh, to what they've been doing and what has been working for them. The final takeaway for me, at least, Raul, is just enough change to allow the status quo to continue. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Raul, for joining us on the AQ Podcast. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Brian. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. You can read more at americasquarterly.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review and a rating and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is produced in partnership with Human Group Media. 
Our producers are Benjamin Russell and Fernanda Uriegas. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas.